If Christ's baptism was his inauguration, then this is the first self-proclamation of the inaugurated age. He has come, is shown, and is now announced. Third week of baby dedications. Give it up real quick. Baby dedications. Last week was a bit of a hot one. We went about 55 minutes from the pulpit (laughs) featuring baby dedications. So I'm aware and I will try to keep this short. I will do my best. Mothers especially, please be patient with me. I'm trying as I think of Roots and the kids in here. Um, So yeah, with that in mind, I'm going to kick it off. Last time I preached, I talked about a story in Washington about waiting for the bus. It seems Washington is ripe with analogies and stories because about nine months before I moved here back in 2015, um, one of my favorite bands ever was on tour. You see, I was living there and none of my local friends were able to get tickets uh, for the show in time due to money or availability. We were all pretty poor at the time. However, I did manage to get a ticket and was resolute in my desire to go, even if it meant to go alone. The show was headlined by a band called The Wonder Years. Um, Some of you are probably familiar with one of my two decrepit hoodies, not the maroon one, the gray one. That is is the Wonder Years hoodie that was got by some friends who are actually in the audience and go to this church for me a couple of birthdays ago. I cherish it very much. Um, This was their headline tour of their newest album at the time in 2015. It came out a couple months prior. The album was called No Closer to Heaven. It featured much of their prior sound, but definitely took a more mature, life is moving on tone. The show featured a few other bands, one of which opened with the trailer of the upcoming Star Wars film that was like their come out. It was a dual headline. The band is called Motion City Soundtrack. And they opened with The Force Awakens, which was set to come out two months after the show, roughly, in that December. And I remember thinking at the time, as much as this wasn't music, I was like, there's no way you beat this opening. Because everybody's hyped. It's like the first Star Wars movie in quite some time. The music's playing. It's Star Wars. Everybody's going nuts. It's both quiet and like electric in the audience. And I was like, there's no way The Wonder Years outperforms this opening. As both a nerd and a millennial, Star Wars is pretty significant to me. Um, However, it came time for the Wonder Years to play. Um, In this guitar riff in the intro song of the album, it's called Brothers And. It's an ampersand. Um, Plays, and it's a single chord. It plays out with a really good delay on it. I was aware the second the first chord played that this was going to be memorable. Um... You see, the opening line in the album, and it's a repeated theme of the album, No Closer to Heaven. Uh, It's repeated throughout the whole album in multiple songs. The line goes, we're no saviors if we can't save our brothers. It's a desperate line, a mournful line, and ultimately a hopeful line. And at this show, as the riff continued to play, that line began to be sung and chanted, The stage lights up, and it isn't just the Wonder Years on stage, but the opening band, which I believe was State Champs before they were like a big deal, and Motion City Soundtrack, both full bands. It's about 10 extra people on stage. They all had microphones, and they were all there singing that line because in the opening song, they just repeat it over and over again like a chant while the music plays. Um, 
the crowd begins to sing also, and the song, the sound like swells and soars. Um, I know I've talked about this a little bit, but due to a mental illness, sometimes when I'm in a certain mood, sound has like texture. I can feel it. And I'll never forget what that felt like as every human in that building and everybody on stage with mics was singing that line, we're no saviors if we can't save our brothers. Pyrotechnics occur and they're singing it over and over again. And it is just like one of the most epic, the ground is shaking. You know how like when kids run through here, you can feel it in the pews, the vibration because of the concrete. It was like that times a thousand. Um, And I remember thinking, There will be better shows that I see, but there will be nothing as good as this. Um, That sentiment, we're no saviors if we can't save our brothers. The longing hope, the fear church, the urgency, and the desperation is much the tone of some of the moving characters of the story we'll be covering today in Mark. As I said, we're in Mark which compared to the other gospels contains a sense of urgency and immediacy as the stories are told often what in the literary world we'll call in media res, which is a Latin term for in the middle of it, just in the thick of things. Mark's gospel often picks up with little transition or narratively connecting and bridging language. It might give one sentence that's just a setting sentence, but there's not a lot of bridging. And then they walked here. It's not as like narratively focused. The stories are more self-contained, which does provide for the reader a sense of urgency, much like that song. As we're given story after story, which while certainly connected, um, in a literary sense, is going to create kind of a segregation of each thing and make each thing stand out. And we're going to see that today. This draws out that sense of urgency in this gospel, the speed of the narrative. It creates a dynamic church of look here, check this out, look at this now. Church, I don't want to overlook this as we continue through our sermon series in Mark we will immediately be drawn to the urgency felt in this story by the characters. For context, last week, Jesus heals a leper. And then he requests the leper that the leper, quote, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, church, many of you are probably familiar with what happens. The leper does not do that. He sees to it that everyone knows. Um, He does the exact opposite. He tells everyone So now Jesus' public ministry has a light shown on it that the prior chapter did not. The public begins to see and seek Jesus. And we're going to take a look at this first fully public interaction where the dynamic shifts. So church, if you're able, please rise for the reading of God's word. We are today in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It should be on the back with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, the um, spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this church. This is God's word. It is beautiful. It is holy. You may be seated. Let's pray real quick. Father God, we give thanks to you today. We thank you for babies. We thank you for growing families. We thank you for friends and parents. We thank you for your word, for your constant protection, your patience, your anointing. Lord, I ask that you pray for this time, that we would receive your word well, that you would bless my words, have me say what you will, get myself out of the way, Lord, remove all pride or arrogance or fear and trepidation. Lord, we give thanks to you today. It's so joyous that we get to worship you and wonder about you. Amen. Let's kick things off. Let's set the stage. We know that Jesus is in Capernaum because the story says so. In his adult home, likely, or at least a home base of his ministry where he calls the apostles. This is or could be the home of Peter's father, one of the apostles. And it's located in the greater area of Galilee, which is where he's been doing his ministry recently. And it's along the sea. It's a fishing village. Since Christ's healing of the leper in Galilee Galilee has occurred, and the leper has since told everyone he has encountered, it seems, many have obviously gathered, probably as we would, to see what is going on. And because of this, there's literally no more room in the house. He's teaching, he's preaching from scripture, and there's absolutely no room. It's wall-to-wall people, much like a concert, who have come to hear and to be ministered to and by Jesus. So verse 3 begins this primary action that catapults the short narrative, where four individuals have come, hearing that this Jesus fellow has healed the sick. They're unable to reach him. Again, all the people, smushed, sandwiched, uncomfortable. If you're someone like me, it's a big problem. I would start probably freaking out and pacing. I'd have to like leave and stand in the back and like walk around in circles, stressing everyone out. The doors and windows are blocked. People are pushed in from all sides inside the house. People are leaning to listen outside. They're encircled around the building. There's absolutely no way to get through church. And you see, as the verses show, four men show up. And they're here with absolutely urgent purpose. They carry with them a paralytic man on a bed. It is here that we see their desperation and urgency unfold. In a plot that is bordering on last hope and truly utter desperation, the four men push their way through to the walls of the house at least. We know that the house is filled wall to wall, but in my head for some reason I can't shake that the whole house is encircled. It's not like every glass window is an openable. People are listening in. They're curious. And it's just a fight 
of excuse me's, let us throughs, kind of like at a concert where you just want to get a few inches closer to hear what's going on. Um, And finally, they make it to the walls of the house. They can't get in. There's no way they're getting inside, but at least they push to the walls of the house. And they do what anybody who's desperate does to get closer to something, much like children, they find a way up. As we know with kids, up is often the trajectory by which they are going to get to what they want. So they get to the walls of the house. They climb the roof, careful to lift this paralytic man, because it's not just them climbing the roof. It's just four guys hopping under a roof. You can like, you know, give them a boost, a hoist, grab them by their like tunic waistcoat and just kind of toss them. But there's somebody that can't walk or can't move um, stuck. So that means that they're on a cot and... I don't know how tall this house is, but tall enough that you have to imagine that this is a careful task, but something that they're willing to do um, because they're so concerned for the individual. And then they get up to the roof and they do like, it's like already crazy enough that they're getting up onto the roof to just like get closer. But then they like, you know, participate in a B&E. Like, like they just start tearing the roof apart to get in there, which is wild to think about. And sure, you know, roofs were different back then, probably a little easier to put together um, than like re-shingling a whole house. But in my head, it is so wild that once I get to the roof, the obvious next solution is, well, we remove a part of the roof. How desperate were they? They didn't know Jesus or if they did, had only heard recently of his ministry church, as word had just begun to spread just in this last story. So this isn't some yet extravagant or well-known ministry. So far, remember Jesus has healed and he has cast out demons, but always requested silence from both people and the demons even, always essentially saying, shh, don't tell anyone, it's not time. So only the last story does the word get out, and it only gets out in this region, in Galilee. So there is still this tension of who is this man? Who is this guy? But he is teaching. He has healed at least one person that the public knows, a leper. um, And he's teaching, and people have gathered. However... In contrast to what little is known publicly about Christ, to these men, regardless of how much is known, it's worth the effort. It's worth the attempt. The concern for the paralyzed man far outweighs the risk of the effort not being rewarded. Real quick, side note, church. I challenge all of you to think about the desperate times in your life. I think back to my friends and my family. I think back of the times when in my personal desolation, those around me made desperate acts to preserve me. At least in that sentiment, I've seen the perseverance and willingness to act that these four men showed. And church, if I think we're honest, I think we all have. So anyway, back to the narrative, sorry. They're up on the roof and they do the only thing they could to get closer The only, it's weird to say this, but sensible thing. If you want to get to the person, it's of course, it's sensible to remove the roof. That makes sense in this context. You know, can't get in somewhere. Tear off the roof to see the person. 
So they remove a patch of the roof. This isn't their home. They likely don't know the man teaching well, that's Jesus. But again, church, they're urgent and desperate to see the paralyzed man healed. And more importantly, they're hopeful in this person, Jesus. And so in a stunning turn of events, not only do they remove the roof committing in modern times a B and E, uh, they lower the man down before Jesus. Jesus, it is said, sees their faith. I don't immediately assume, it doesn't mean I'm not going to think this, but I don't immediately assume that it's some supernatural vision. It certainly likely is. However, it's first layered with the awareness of the situation, which is that four guys just tore off a patch of the roof and lowered a guy down, likely very close to the Christ, to Jesus, and are going at too great lengths to see this man saved. I would liken it to me teaching right now. And then like, if a random person, the ceiling just breaks away, bam, all over there, there's debris. Carlos is very concerned. (laughs) I am also very concerned, but I have to assume Carlos is a little more concerned. Um, And then somebody is lowered down. I don't know this person. Um, I think... Certainly Jesus is able to see the supernatural side of that, but also we just have to be aware that in a very human sense, a human is coming through the roof. So there is some, some like communal layer or um, understanding that he sees their faith. He's just like, okay, you went to great lengths to do this. And Jesus rewards this series of actions in an astounding way. So church, just again, real quick, look at verse five. Christ responds in a different way than expected, an interesting way. He says, son, your sins are forgiving. What an incredible turn of events. Prior to this, the described healings in Mark are just that. Castings out, healings, removal of uncleanliness physically. However, here we see Christ first demonstrating his mission in word. Your sins are forgiven. This is also the point that will begin the famous drama between Christ and the religious leaders, which is very important to Mark, especially in the next five kind of segments of Mark. This will begin that tension that will continue through the next passages where we see Jesus contrasting the kingdom of God against the social and religious norms of the time of the Jewish peoples. We will see more of this kingdom contrast in the coming sections and sermons. But here, this tension with the religious leaders starts when they were internally disgusted by this statement, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, now perceiving their disgust, addresses them in questions, which is easier, the forgiveness of sins or the healing of the sick? That's such a weird question to me. And it is a question that God has to ask because my mom is a nurse. There are many medical workers here. Uh, Many of you would probably testify that it is much easier to treat a patient than to supernaturally forgive their sins in a way that we will testify is saving forgiveness in the Christian sense. Many of you medical workers, that would seem asinine to assume that you could just be like helping somebody, maybe getting them through physical therapy. They're rehabilitated. They walk again. And that in a contrast, Jesus says, what's easier to forgive sins or to heal them? 
Uh, I, think, I think of some of you in, in your medical fields. It, it seems possible, even though sometimes, sometimes not possible, mostly possible to heal somebody. Whereas we're going to testify theologically that it is impossible for us to forgive uh, sins. And then Jesus uh, takes it a step, a step further by way of answering his own question. He responds, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Church, this is Christ's first proclamation and mark of his authority and mission. This is where he to the public is saying exactly why he's here. Here, Jesus declares who he is. In Mark, the term son of man appears 15 times and seems to be able to be segregated into three separate categories per one theologian. The first category is Christ's earthly mission and ministry. The second is Christ's uh, second coming. And finally, the bulk usages categorically seem to refer to the suffering and the passion of Christ. This usage is one of two church that falls neatly and perfectly into that first category, his earthly activity, why he is here, his mission, his telos, which just means his end, his goal. There has been some interesting and long-winded theological discourse on the usage here and its relation to Daniel 7.13. And while I'm not sure the answer is certain, I do know that Josephus, this is a Jewish historian from that age, testified in one of his works that Daniel was a familiar piece of literature at the time of Jesus and may well have been a relating branch of the announcement of Christ's ministry here. Not that everyone understood it, just that they're familiar with the term in its prophetic context. Not that necessarily they're putting it all together like we have the ability to wonder and think about, but that the text was familiar, that is Daniel, and that that language existed. Jesus' answer to the scribes here demonstrates that Christ has come in authority and for the forgiveness of sins. If Christ's baptism was his inauguration of the kingdom, then this is the first self-proclamation of the inaugurated age. Church, I'm going to repeat that again. If Christ's baptism was his inauguration, then this is the first self-proclamation of the inaugurated age. He has come, is shown, and is now announced. And to demonstrate this authority, church, he commands the paralytic man to rise which to everyone's shock, he does. He promptly takes his bed and departs. As I said, this shocks everyone, church. Everyone begins to glorify God and worship and ask, who is this guy? As I think we all would. Church, this seems to be an analog example of us. The lyrics to the Wonder Years often will randomly ring out in my head. It's one of my favorite lines from, song, from any song ever. We're no saviors if we can't save our brothers. I'm not saying that we must then save those around us. In the context of the Bible, this is assuredly impossible. However, church, the urgency of that sentiment is felt right here. It is showcased in full display when the four men seeing that the only hope for the paralyzed man is this teacher in a house in Capernaum. And so they desperately climb the building, remove the roof, and lower the man down before this teacher, hoping, begging for him to be healed. 
And I know we share this desperation. In many ways, we are both the four men and the paralyzed man. We are desperate to aid those we care about and paralyzed in sin, desperately and urgently in need of healing and a savior. Church, at this, the proclamation of Christ's public ministry and identity in Mark, I urge you to think and act on this desperation. See the state of yourselves and the state of those around you. Church, remember the authority and primacy of Christ in his mission. He is the prime healer and deliverer. This is the gospel message that Christ came to an absolutely ravaged and ruined humanity. Hopelessness abounds beyond reason as we bite, tear, and claw at each other, willing to eat each other alive. We truly are desperate creatures. Church, all at once, we're trying to aid those around us and being paralyzed in sin. But for the ministry of Christ, we would be truly and utterly desolate and assailed by our own mortal self-interest. A church father named Irenaeus stated this, therefore, by remitting sin, sins, he did indeed heal man, while he also manifested himself who he was. For if no one can forgive sin, But God alone, while the Lord remitted them and healed them and healed men, it is plain that he was himself the word of God, made the son of man, receiving from the father the power of remission of sins. Since he was a man and since he was God, in order that as man he suffered for us, So as God, he might have compassion on us and forgive us our debts in which we are made debtors to our God, our creator. We know the story, church. This is a familiar one. Even if you're not here every Sunday, I would hazard a guess that because we live in America and because we're in the Midwest, you've heard this story at least a handful of times, whether in church or not. It's told throughout many other stories Um, It seems to be a type for desperation, for healing. It's easily remembered. It's shared on Christian high holidays often. It isn't a new revelation for us as it was for the people in that room. For them, this was the new proclamation, the new age, the coming of the kingdom. They were experiencing it, but the urgency, the desperation, the hope, is the same, while it isn't new to us. Those, those components are the same church. We are urgent, we are desperate, and in that way, we are the same. I wonder what this neighborhood, this city could look like if we truly acted out the desperate state we're in, compelled by the knowledge of Christ's gospel that we possess, as Irenaeus said, acting as four men desperate, desperate and propelled by hope for those paralyzed around us. We are definitely not saviors. Church, we can't save our brothers, but we have hope. We know the one who can. Our faith is ignited by the power of Christ's ministry, church, and the gospel 
It is urgent and ultimately a saving message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I hope while short I was able to honor you. I thank you again for your word, for your saving work. Lord, I thank you for family. I thank you for friends. I thank you for your gospel and your work on the cross. Lord, preserve us, save us. Make us to know you, to love you, and to worship you. Thank you for this body, Lord, as we continue to worship, both in liturgical dedication of an infant, of a close friend of the church. Lord, allow us to equally commit as a body in voice, mind, and heart. Lord, as we participate in communion, allow us to pray loudly and lovingly for one another, celebrating in the fellowship of your Eucharist. Lord, as we sing out and we're blessed with benediction, Lord, allow us to go on our ways with urgency, desperation, and ultimately the true hope that is your gospel. I give thanks for you for your peace, that you responded urgently to an urgent need in sending your son. Jesus, we love you. We give thanks to you today. It's your name I pray. Amen.